And we are back, live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of free speech, anti-censorship, and truth in the vast barren wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So I think Russia's winning in the war in Ukraine, Rod. I hate to break it to you, but I'm pretty sure they're winning. And one of the ways I was able to tell that I was preparing for the show, and I was listening to DW, Deutsche Welle News, the German news network. By the way, I don't speak German, but I think Deutsche Welle is German for mainstream media. I think that's what it means. If not literally, well, I think it means German news, but it's it's totally mainstream news. It's not a unique. They're, oh, yeah, for sure. I follow them as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and their take would be at home in the Washington Post or the LA Times or the New York Times. Any American major newspaper, they have the same take. But they were saying today that Russia's winning the war. So when Deutsche Welle says that, what does it tell you? You see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, when the mainstream media is yeah. right, when the mainstream media is admitting, well, it looks like Ukraine's losing, and they didn't go all the way. In fact, the rep- they had one of the segments on when a reporter was on, and the reporter was saying, "So, do you think?" This is a turning point in the war. And the person couldn't bring themselves to say yes. So they said, uh, kind of, basically. That was their answer. But what's that telling you, Rod? When the mainstream media goes, mm, kind of, it's a turning point. They just don't want to admit it, right? Yeah, they're in denial. You know, they've been hyping up, you know, the Ukrainian forces, the Azov fighters as these heroes who can withstand anything they don't have to eat they don't have to drink they could just they're just going to wipe out the russian military with no with, with, with ease and here they are you know kind of with pity you know like yeah well maybe russia's taking taking control of parts of ukraine and yeah, it well, seems like ukraine ukraine's losing well yeah and what they do is because we're 93 days into this war right they say this is Actually, the reporter on DW, this is what he said. Well, wasn't this expected sooner? Get that? Wasn't this expected sooner? In other words, they didn't win fast enough for DW. So it's kind of a loss. And I guess by who? You, you guys? You guys didn't expect this sooner at all. You guys expect them to lose. So the fact that Russia's winning, you're admitting, but not winning fast enough is baffling to you. He said, yes, of, of course he said yes. He said, yes, the Russians expected this in a few days, but the fact that it's taken 90 days shows the bravery and tenacity of the Ukrainian forces. Well, that's one thing it could show them. It could show their bravery and tenacity. It could also show that they're losing. I would say doing this in 90 days 
is pretty good. I don't think that's too long. Because, you know, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Rod. Yeah, no, like we were saying from the beginning, this has been very precise. And by by the uh, Russian and the Russian military, they've tried as, as hard as they can to uh, take, you know, not lose as many civilians as Ukraine. They've tried to, you know, they've given how many chances for uh, civilian corridors, humanitarian corridors? I mean, I think at least four that I can remember. I think they're doing another one now where they're, they're slowing down their operation. So, you know, I, I agree with you, Lee. Like, this, is, this has just been the media hyping this up like, uh, like you know, uh, Rocky versus Apollo Creed. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just crazy. But it shows what I've talked about for a long time. If you want to figure out the truth in the news, the key is not not listening. You have to listen to both sides in the news. And what the one side tells you, this is a pro- German network. They're anti-Russian. They're pro-Ukrainian. They tell you a lot by telling you, well, the Russians should have won sooner. They're admitting the Russians are winning, Right. So there's no one denying that the Russians are winning right now. Well, all they're denying, they don't want to say what happened quickly or compared to a lot of wars, you know, 90 days to victory. And and they don't admit that Russia's strategy was not going gung-ho. You know, we are, Russia is not using a shock and awe strategy. They're not pulling out all the weapons that they could. And they've not been as vicious in war as the United States would have been. Is there any question about that, Rod? Do you think there's, in in other words, there's two possibilities. One is Russia hasn't been as vicious because they can't. In other words, they want to be vicious, but they're incapable of it. I I think they are capable of it. If these, the United States, shock and awe, we go in with all our weaponry, we kill everybody, we take out the civilian infrastructure, that's what we do. Russia's not done that in Ukraine, right? No, not at all. And like we had Dmitry Babich, I believe it was last week, you know, he said, I'm just quoting him, he said Russia hasn't even used one-tenth of their military might. So, I mean, like I said, they've been taking it really lightly, and uh, I mean, you know, lightly in a war sense, you know, because people are going to die. There is going to be civilian casualty and things like that. But, yeah, we haven't seen Russia go all out. And I don't think they would even have to ever because unless, you know, then it would be a World War Three situation for them to pull out all the stops. But, you know, Ukraine doesn't have a military that could uh, ever withstand Russia. Yes. And and I pointed out before, I think the way Putin has conducted this war shows the difference between the Russia Russia and the United States. The United States would have gone full full force in and decimated everything. And I think the fact that Russia hasn't showed again war is tough. Innocent people die in war. Period. That's that's why I will point out that Vladimir Putin put off the war. He did not for eight years And it was eight years yesterday. It was an anniversary. Eight years since this conflict started in Donbass, for instance. 
exactly eight years, May 26th, yesterday, was exactly eight years. Russia held off a lot of hostilities that they could have, did not engage in a war, tried to negotiate diplomatically over and over and over again. But the people who did not negotiate are Ukrainians. And now that the war has turned against him, it's always been against him. But now it's clearly Russia's winning. Zelensky, do you think he's backing down, Rod? We'll go to Call it Sharif in one second. But do you think Zelensky's backing down? What's your guess? No. Actually, I was going to ask you if you had seen that he was at a video conference into the Stanford graduation. So, no, I don't think, you know, the, the, the U.S. empire here is still parroting him around like he's some type of uh, strong man and, you know, never give up. Don't, you know, <laughs> fight to the last Ukrainian, you know, and then, then you know what I mean? So it's just it's just craziness. Right, and they 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 bark on the sidelines. How brave you are! Go ahead, bravely die. We just ask that more Ukrainian troops bravely die. Yay! So Zelensky is not getting any more realistic about what he needs to do. What he needs to do is surrender. You've lost, Zelensky. You've lost. And he's still not allowing people to surrender. He's still saying, stand and fight. So that's what's going on over in Ukraine. And once again, congratulations to Russia on a victory. And I think a very ethical victory, but clearly a victory. But will Ukraine admit it, act accordingly? Not if the U.S. can help it. 202-521-1320. Tarif, what is on your mind? Thank you, Lee, for taking my call. How you doing, Rob? First, I'd like to say free, free doing the science. I have four comments. I'm going to see if I can make it through them. The first one is very important. This little article that came out, which is uh, this news organization attached to Sputnik. I think it's Sputnik, but it was saying that um, the spread of monkeypox may have been through the hands of terrorists that probably spread, spread them. It was told at a special briefing the head of the um, RCBZ troops, Igor Kurilov. I don't know who that is. It also go ahead, it, it goes on to say Washington has has four biological labs in Nigeria where, according to who, a monkey pop stamp was introduced. The Washington military had found documents in Ukraine that prepared U.S. instructions for the outbreak of smallpox. And they go on to say other things. My second comment is... Um, Imran Khan had warned the Pakistani government that when if they don't have elections within six days, he's going to march a million people to the, um, the capital unless they don't have um, elections in six days. That's the second comment. The third comment is that um, Ukraine is threatened Hungary by threatening them about that they might um, possibly block the transit transition of oil to the um, Hungary putting basically an energy block on them. My last comment, 300,000 people will lose their jobs in, in um, Austria if gas supplies are cut off from the um, Russian Federation. So that's the full comments for today. Thank you for me. Thank you, Lee, for taking my call. Well, thanks, Sharif. You brought up a lot of good points there. An interesting situation we have not discussed much, speaking of Germany. Have you been following 
do you know who Russia's big enemy in Ukraine is for a political party in Germany? Their big enemy is the Green Party. The Green Party, you've heard of them, a leftist party broadly, pro-environmental, hence Green. But the Green Party in Germany, the Green Party in the coalition government they put together, basically runs the part of the government that's focused on energy. And the Green Party, being the Green Party, when the discussion of Russian oil comes up and importing Russian oil into Germany, the Green Party is dead set against Russia. Not just because of Russia, but also because they don't like oil imports. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, and I also believe they were behind the shutdown of the nuclear power plant in Germany. Uh, do you remember that? I think it was uh, within the last six months or so. And it's a brilliant move, putting the Green Party in charge of how you're using energy. Who could have seen that possibly go wrong? But the Green Party, because they're so viciously anti against Russia and against oil, they're leading to disaster. A lot of industry is shutting down Germany. Bosch, a big manufacturer, BMW, we talked about before. A lot of industry is shutting down Russia. And it's likely that it will never come back. Germany. Uh, sorry, Germany. sorry about that. What what I say? You, you said Russia. You said Russia. For, forgive me. But but Germany shutting down in Germany over. It's not solely related to Russia issue, but it's partially related to Russia. By the way, industry. Speaking of industry in Russia, industry in Russia fine. Industry in Russia is groovy. Because you know what happened there, Rod? A lot of companies pulled out of Germany. We talked about, for instance, McDonald's and Starbucks. But also a lot of people who make high-tech gear, right? Phones and so on. A lot of those companies have pulled out. But do you think what Russia did was say, we don't need cell phones anymore. We'll We'll just use old corded phones. No, they did not. What happened was Russia sprung back. And do you know what's happening? A lot of countries are forming in Russia to fill in the gaps. Does that make sense? A lot of Russia companies say, if you won't make cell phones for us, that's fine. We'll make our own cell phones. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, I saw a statement from Putin uh, last night where he was saying, you know, he he was actually saying he was glad some of these companies were leaving. He said, good, you know, now we can uh, have uh, our own companies here and uh, we can can build up our nation with our own resources here. Right. And and so Russia has proved resilient because they're not there. John McCain, the late John McCain, known as the father of Meghan McCain. The late John McCain once said, Russia's economy is basically a gas station with the economy attached to it. And that's not true. Russia has a lot of people who know tech. There's a lot of programmers in Russia. People get educated over there. 
And do you know why? I don't think a lot of the woke degrees that we pursue in the United States, for instance, getting a degree in transgender basket weaving, I don't know if that's exactly, I'm making it up, but is transgender basket weaving actually a degree, Rod? It's probably included in gender studies, which you which you can get your bachelor's in. So I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. So they don't have a lot of those degrees. They don't have a lot of people going for useless degrees in Russia. They learn useful things. And this is good for Russia. Cutting, you know, they were in the economy before where they were using the stuff that the West made because the West had made it, and it was convenient. But Russia's economy is better off self-sufficient, and Russia's economy is already springing back very quickly. You you won't hear that in mainstream media. Will you, Rod? Not at all. You know, not at all. Definitely not. And uh, just to let you know, we've got Al Killer on the line. Okay, I was going to bring on the Killer Owls. He called yesterday. We couldn't take him yesterday because we're in the middle of a guest segment. But Owl Killer, 202-521-1320, what is on your Owl Killer mind? So it's not transgender basket weaving. It's underwater basket weaving. That's a uh, transgender basket weaving is a minor. Um, The last couple of the last couple of days you guys were talking about, um, I, at least the headlines were uh, the Davos meeting um, in the, with the World Economic Forum. Um, I, th- I think it's pretty obvious the world that they're carving out for us with the absolute top-down control over at, at, um, every facet of human existence. And the wars are side notes of it. But we are being I, – I read that um, Mitt Romney, um, sir, that we have to be uh, – article the op-ed in the New York Times where we have to be um, ready for uh, Vladimir Putin's worst weapons and, and how to survive a nuclear war. There, at, at a certain point, the not just the American people, but the people of the world have to understand that you, you know, you you see David Rockefeller passed away, George Bush um, Sr. passed away. A lot of the architects of the old New World Order, um, I, I think the people that are still alive, like the George Soros and Henry Kissingers, I mean, at least Henry Kissinger is somewhat sane in saying that uh, Ukraine should cede um, some land to Russia in order to get this conflict over. But I think they're, they want to have this, they're they're realizing that hey you know a lot of our architects have died without seeing their vision actually complete and they're moving very fast towards whatever um, they have on the outside for us and I think it's very important that people realize our fight's not with Russia it's not amongst races because Russia's issues Russia has the same enemies we do I'm not going to argue with people that support Black Lives Matter because they have the same issues that people that support um, police um, have. It's these global, it's the globalists, it's the global institutions that are pitting us against each other. And if we come together and see that, hey, we all have the exact same enemy, I I think that is the only way that we're going to avoid some uh, catastrophe because the way that the way that the people, I mean, I just saw the, um, they're saying that China has plans to take Taiwan and 
um, plans to invade the United States of America. Who knows if those audio leaks are true? But one mistake, and there is no the world that we know is no longer going to exist, and we're being led by very evil people across the entire globe. And I, I think that we have to, I mean, I agree with probably 90% of what Brave says, and I know he thinks, I, I know that he's on the conspiracy side that the same way that I am, that w- there's stuff that we think that we don't say because we can't prove it. But I think we have to actually analyze the people that are the, the puppet masters behind the scene because they're, uh, they're now out in front of the, they're out in front of us telling us what they're going to do. It's, it's no longer being hid. Well, no. So let me ask you something. You said a lot of good stuff there, Alco. Let, let me break down some of it. Do you agree that the new world order is really the old world order with a fresh coat of paint? That's all. I I really think this. The people promoting what they call the new world order, I really think it's the old world order. The Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the people, the royals. The Queen's having a jubilee over in England now. Are you celebrating that, Al Killer? Not at all. I could care less about the royalty. In fact, they disgust me. Okay. The Queen is very sad. But this, I think, I th- it occurred to me in the past few days that this is really the old world order. Do you think that's true? No, it's funny you say that because it almost, uh, it almost seems like in Godfather 1 where before Michael actually retaliates and after Son- it's after Sonny's killed and Don Vito comes back, where they're basically accepting for the time period, they're going to give the other families a little piece of the action because at the moment they're not, they're realizing that they can't control everything that they were and they have to regroup. And that's what I noticed with the Henry Kissinger saying that they should see that Ukraine should seize um should give uh, Russia some land. So yes, it's the old British Anglo-American establishment that is trying to hold on to a world order that's not there. But at the same time, they are acknowledging that there's going to be a new world order and Biden had alluded to it. And it, it comes from the um, fourth turning book where every 80 years, you know, there's a, the, the world changes drastically and they have to, they have to be in like they they want basically the British Anglo-American establishment to be the leader of the new world order that emerges. But yes, it's the same. It is. It is the old world order. Yes. And I think it's just an important distinction to not be fooled by it. By the way, peripheral notes, since you brought up the Godfather, side note, but yesterday we had word that actor Ray Liotta, who started the film, film Goodfellas, of course, star of Marcia says Goodfellas, and the recent Sopranos TV movie, Ray Liotta is dead. The actor Ray Liotta is dead at age 67. So I want to mention that as a side issue because we talk about that those movies quite a bit on the show, particularly when John Kiriakou was co-host. So R.I.P. Ray Liotta. But uh, back to what Al Killer was saying. So... I do think, and one of the reasons I've been talking in the past couple of weeks is I'm trying to figure out how to explain to people on the left that they're being played. I think you'd agree. This is essentially what you're saying. I think Black Lives Matter people 
are being played by the establishment, and they don't see it because they think it's anti-establishment. Is that what you're saying, Bradley Owl Killer? Yes, actually, that's it to a T. And it's I, I noticed it with um, Obama trying to equate George Floyd to the shooting in Texas. It's collecting a group of people. Their people are legitimately mad over issues. But rather than they redirect the anger, and it, whether people agree with the anger or not, they're redirecting the anger on they're making us fight with each other rather than people seeing that the ones that are causing the issues that they're angry about are the ones that are pitting us against each other. And that's the only way they're able to hold on. Cause if people, I mean, at the end of the day, you can't compete with people that print money out of thin air and they, you, you can't do it. And if, if that, if people actually come to that realization that, Hey, there are transnational um, businesses, transnational companies, and bankers that print money out of thin air, they have an endless war chest, and they're just bu- they're buying up the world, whether it's through war or whether it's through finance. You can't compete with that. And people, w- we can have a legit argument about policies and how to make the world work better for us, but they keep us fighting with each other rather than fighting with the people that are creating the situation. In fact, one thing I've been doing, my girlfriend and I have been working on an ebook based on an Anthony Sutton. You're familiar with Anthony Sutton, of course. Al Killer, right? Yep. Charles Anthony Sutton. Right, actually. Too. What's that? Charlotte Isserby, um, whose father was Skull and Bones, um, who yes. Sutton, all, all of those, all, all of the um, inner workings in the books and their meetings actually just passed away a few weeks ago. Well, Anthony, oh, really? That's right. I, I remember hearing that. But Anthony Sutton... In this talk, he talked about how the Bolsheviks in Russia were funded by Wall Street. That's clear. And, and Wall Street. What does that tell you, Keller? Sent it, it's admitted. Um, Wall, it was New York and London finance. They sent about four hundred Russians. I believe the boat. Um, I'm sorry, not. They sent them on a boat with uh, with American gold. And then they went on a train. I believe the train was stopped in Switzerland. This all admitted. This is admitted in history. And, it, you know, it, Bolshevik Revolution all came from Wall Street in London. Karl Marx was British. Right. So, you know, it, it doesn't come out of Russia. And I think that's, it. you know, you bring it up. You bring up why they hate Putin so much. It's I mean, go look. This guy's dedicating. He, Alexander Solzhenitsyn met with Putin said he's one of the one of the best uh people for uh, like to actually lead Russia. I mean I, I mean Putin dedicates statues to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I think they're mad at Russia for escaping what they got out of. And then they they 100% for them. And, and when we talk about people like Khodorkovsky for instance, who's clearly tied to the Rothschilds. Not I, I say look it up. Look up Khodorkovsky. Look up Rothschilds. You'll see that that Mikhail Khodorkovsky gave his controlling interest in Yuko soil to Jacob Rothschild. It's right there, black and white. People don't see who's really behind these things. Now when we come up, let's go to the city mouse. I'm, he's not a mouse, he's not actually a mouse. But Ted Rawl, the great cartoonist, author, and Bobby Vaughn will be with us on the backstory next.
And we're back on the backstory and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C., the capital of the Empire of Lies. Joining us now, our good friend from New York, author, cartoonist, and Bobby Vaughn, Ted Rawl. Hey, Ted, how you doing? I'm good, Lee. How are you? I'm good. So let me, we were talking with Al Killer before, and let me leave, pick up on that. I'll try to ask this question in a way that's fair and non-insulting to anybody. Do you think, how do you think the left has been co-opted by Wall Street forces and the forces of big business? Do you think it's happened, A, and how does it happen? Uh, please define the left. Do you mean like sort of the, the Democratic Party or do you mean like, uh, you know, the, uh, the like progressives or do you mean like actual lefties like socialists and communists? I'm using the term with a wide uh, definition, so it could include both of them. I think the Democrats and, in fact, some leftist organizations that are clearly on the left of the left have been co-opted. Yeah, I think I mean, look. I think certainly, you know, if you go as far, you know, certainly the Democratic Party, there's no question um, ever, ever since they, as Bernie Sanders pointed out, ever since uh, they, they decided to start uh, looking to uh, big single checks from Wall Street firms uh, for their donate donor base and turning away from their alliance with labor, uh, you know, that started, went back several decades ago, uh, the co-op, you know, the co-option, it was, it was really more like selling out because they sold out. It was an intentional decision. It's not something that snuck up on them or something that Wall Street sort of, uh, you know, cons them into. It was a deliberate decision by the Democratic Party. Uh, in terms of, you know, think people like George Soros, you know, Open Society Institute, people like, uh, you know, uh, you know, various, th- you know, liberal think-, think tanks like Brookings or, uh, the uh, you know sort of the, the uh, Center for American Progress, those people I think don't really realize how much they've been played, um, and I think it's because they basically have followed the DNC down that path, and so like you know once you decide that you're always all in for the Democrats no matter what, uh, and that you you know your opposition to the Republicans is your is your uh, core objective. It's your prime directive. It's the one thing that you're after all the time. Then you know it logically follows that you start making these unholy alliances with you know the people who you should be fighting against, uh, but in fact you're in bed with them. And I think, in fact, you know, I use the term co-opted to describe a lot of people on the right. The right has been using the term broadly. Everyone from people who are just in favor of less taxes to people who are neocons, a, a lot of the right has been co-opted by these groups, and they don't know who really runs things. Do you think it's fair to say about the left that they don't know who's paying? It doesn't occur to them who's paying this bill. Yeah, no, it's not. That's true. It's I mean, and not to mention there's other forms of corruption. You know, for example. The corruption in the Black Lives Matter Foundation, uh, which is you know something that nobody likes to on the on the you know no liberals just don't like to think about because it's so yucky. Um, there was a similar attempt to do the same thing. Uh, it fortunately didn't really get succeed, but it happened to, to a much lesser extent with Occupy Wall Street. 
where donor money was being collected. And, you know, the left, we haven't been policing our own. So these opportunists come in and, and sweep up, you know, the collections from uh, donations from people who are, you know, on the, you know, on the side of the angels trying to fight police brutality, trying to fight racism, trying to uh, hold Wall Street accountable. And then, uh, you know, the, you have these like these vultures come swooping in. And, uh, and, and, you know, they're only out for themselves. They're not in it for the movement. So, but the problem is, you know, we're so obsessed on the left with, and I think the right has the same thing. We're all obsessed with our enemies, you know, uh, like, oh, the, the, the conservatives, the Republicans are, are destroying America. They're taking away abortion and all that. So we have to fight them. We cannot, uh, you know, if we, if we look at our own, at the sinners within our own ranks, then we won't have a united front. But the problem is you don't have a united front if you basically have traitors in your midst. So, you know, you, you, it, that's the issue. And, you know, you, you have to be you have to hold yourselves to the highest possible standards if you're trying to change the world. And, and we haven't been. And I will say and I, I'm going to use both you and I as an example. I consider you an idealistic person. Not I'm not using it as an insult either. I think believe you have principles said and you do you consider yourself idealistic. Yeah, I'm not saying no, it's, say. it's, it's it is sad that we live in a country where that could be considered an insult. I don't think there's anything insulting at all about being an idealist. I, I am absolutely an idealist. If you're not an idealist, then you really should not be in the political game at all. Uh, people who are just right. rank, we have plenty of pragmatists. We don't need them. We don't need more of those. And let me say, and again, I'd like to think you and I are better than other people, but it's fairly easy to be an idealist when you don't have $2 million sitting in your PayPal account, right? In other words, you and I can sit here and say we're idealists, and we are, I think, but when the pay PayPal account is full of money, like $2 million, it's tempting. Whoever, whoever is, you start going, well, wait, I could pay off this one bill, and then it's so I don't think a lot of these people start off as scammers because who would have predicted they have so much money to their name. But part of it, the money itself is corrupting. Ted, I'm not blaming. I'm not I'm not trying to give an excuse. I'm just trying to be realistic about people's motivations, which is it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I would never do that. But then when the money's sitting right there in your account. A lot of people start to get, well, wait, you know, you know what I'm saying? So I don't, do you think a lot of these people start off as scammers? Uh, no, I agree with you, Lee. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, it's kind of like uh, I can imagine, for example, being a cop on a drug bust, walking in and finding millions of dollars, you know, in some scummy apartment. And you're, and you're thinking to yourself, I have a kid to send to college. I could just take Two or three of these little packages, no one would ever be the wiser. Uh, really? I mean, I have to turn every single dollar over to the police, to the evidence room? Really? All of it? I mean, yeah, no, I, I think that's totally right. I mean, you know, it is easy to say when it's not sitting in front of you. Um, you know, it's like, it's not something that people give a lot of thought to. But I think in a way, that is something people should give a thought to. You know, it's, it's donor money. And donor money is sacred and it's not yours. 
Um, you know, it's, it's something that drove me crazy when I was in Afghanistan, seeing how donor money was was wasted. Uh, you know, on fancy SUVs, fancy villas. Uh, you know, it, it's donor money. It's you know, like for example, Doctors Without Borders. Uh, you know, I went to a hotel where uh, you know it was fully booked by Doctors Without Borders. Five hundred dollars a night per room, forty rooms. I'm like, that's donor money. There's a perfectly good hotel down the street, air conditioning, TV, flat screen, $80 a night. That's, you know, yeah, you know, it's tempting to say they, these doctors do good work. They need a nice place to rest. They do, but it's donor money, you know, and, and I think people just don't think that way, uh, really. I think if you think about it, what you would do in advance in a situation like that, you're in a better place when you find yourself in that position. And you can take yourself out of it, take yourself out of the decision-making process and try to leave it to accounts or whoever. Because, you know, the, the hotel example you gave is a good one. Because what's the difference between one hotel and another ultimately, right? And the answer is the way you feel about the hotel is different. If you're saying we're having these doctors without borders, I'm not paying them, but we're having this conference at the Four Seasons or the La Quinta, you know what I'm saying? That that seems like if it's at the Four Seasons, you've le reached a little bit of success that you can afford to be at the the Four Seasons and not the La Quinta. And I, it's ultimately the way people feel about these things. Right. And it's the image you're trying to project to donors. Correct, Ed? That's yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, there's there's multiple there's definitely, you know, an argument to be made on both sides here. You know, for example, a doctor travels all the way to Afghanistan, is unpaid, as you point out, might be shot and killed, might be blown up by a bomb. Um, you know, so you know, maybe, you know, that person as compensation. It's a small recompense to put them in a really nice hotel room at the end of a day, uh, a hard day of, of operating as a surgeon on, on people who are needy. That's a perfectly valid way to look at it. Uh, you know, I don't look at it that way, uh, but it's it's an argument. I mean, that's what politics is, is arguments about what's right and what's wrong. You know, right. Now, I was thinking about you uh, because we're dealing with this Uvalde shooting situation, and I hate this news cycle. And just want it to go away because I don't hear very much useful being said about it by anybody. It's a tragedy. That's the main thing. And what what I say about the tragedy is a drop in the bucket. It getting back to the parents, it won't make any difference anyway. The parents aren't thinking, well, I wonder if this talk show host thinks. They're dealing with unspeakable tragedy. But I was thinking about this. You worked for many years as an editorial cartoonist. How do you decide if you want to write about a situation like the mass shooting at Uvalde? How do you decide when you're dealing with a situation like this, what's too far as an editorial cartoonist? I shouldn't say this. Well, first of all, I never ever think this is too far, I shouldn't say this um, about anything. So that's never going to happen with me. Um, I think most editorial cartoonists uh, try to just 
they, you know, it's a, they figure it's a major news story. I've got to memorialize it. I've just got to be seen as having expressed the sadness and the horror of it and, and, and maybe cast some blame too. So the typical part cartoonist would do one cartoon about how brutal and horrible it is and in the loss of life and another probably do the next cartoon about, you know, blaming guns, gun, you know, the, R, the NRA or blaming mental illness or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, I'm, I don't function that way. I'm kind of an exception. Um, I, my, my approach is to ask myself if I have anything interesting to say about a topic. So for me saying uh, it's sad when 21 people are brutally murdered in a school is not interesting. I mean, that is plainly, obviously true. Um, you know, everybody thinks that and I, me included, and the world doesn't need Ted Rawl to say it because everyone else knows. Um, so if I have, if I have a take that's interesting, that is, um, that, that I think might get people to think about any topic, including something like this differently, then I will do the cartoon. But if I don't have anything novel or, or hopefully thought-provoking to say, then I just shut up and move on to the next topic. Well, that's a good way of putting it, because that's the reason I say I hate the cycle is I can't think of anything. What can I say that's new and novel on this? And there's nothing much. Sometimes, like on a personal basis, if you're dealing with the parents, they don't need you to say something new and novel. They just, just if if you say sorry for your loss, that's about all they expect you to say. And they're the people that matter in the situation, obviously. But what? Do you think anything new gets said in these circumstances? We've had two major mass shootings in two weeks. They're inexplicable. Where 18, you know, young men, barely not, you know, teenagers, older teenagers have committed horrible acts. And do you have anything you think useful or new to say about that? Yeah, I think I do. I mean, you know, the I think there's something interesting about the timing of uh, this coming right after the president last week signed a bill sending $40 billion worth of mostly weapons and military aid to Ukraine, and then turning around a week later when someone uses, uh, you know, a military-style rifle of the very same kind of which he's sending tens of thousands to Ukraine. Uh, to say, you know, how horrible it is, you know, violent, basically, you know, it, it's, it's so, uh, it's, it, it's so hypocritical and strange um, to have the cognitive dissonance of a president saying that violence is never the answer, you know, what's with all these guns, at the same time that, you know, he's engaged in acts of incredible mass scale violence and, <laughs> you know, dumping tons of wep guns and weaponry onto a country that will, and those guns will be there long after the war is over. Um, and they will be used for bad things that will have nothing to do with war. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's an interesting observation to, you know, to sort of the, you know, the, the, the cluelessness of a, of a system 
that is wallowing in violence and that uses violence rhetoric all the time that, you know, I mean, this is, you know, the, the current president, uh, you know, was making jokes about during the 2012 campaign, you know, General Osama bin Laden is dead, <laughs> but General Motors is still alive. That's a bumper sticker. That's something Biden used to say over and over. Um, you know, that's violent, savage uh, talk. Um, and then to be like, oh, my God, how could anything like this happen? Are you kidding? Like the, the atmosphere of violence comes from the top. So I think that's an interesting thing to talk about, or at least it's not getting it's thought about very much. Um, you know, I also would like and I don't think this is really suitable for a cartoon. I think it's more requires a much deeper dive, like perhaps in a long essay uh, or even a book. But, you know, the, the issue of, um, you know, the the deranged young white guy who loses it and brings a gun to a public place and kills a lot of innocent people. You know, alienation is, is the angle that nobody talks about. You know, like we have like the, there's the whole incel subculture of people who are basically they feel rejected disconnected from society. Uh, and, you know, when you're, if you've ever felt that way, you've ever felt like alone and, and uh, despised and disconnected and not loved or not liked, uh, that's a really horrible place. And at a time like that, you want to, sometimes you might want to lash out. Now, 99.99% of people don't do that, but you can't be surprised when 0.01% of the people do do that, because when you subject a mass population to a to repeated stressors, some of them will snap. And we don't talk about that. I mean, how, you know, our society doesn't really function as much of a, as, of a society as it should. You know, I mean, it's like we live in a country where if, you know, something bad happens to you, uh, you know, you have a health setback. That's your problem. Uh, you lose your job. That's on you. Good luck. Hope you find another one. Uh, you know, and it, that's savage. I mean, that goes against the communitarian impulse that's at the center of human civilization. And um, and so, yeah, obviously, um, some most people are just get depressed about it. But some people who can afford it, you know, <laughs> they they do therapy. Other people self-medicate with drugs or alcohol. But it's, uh, you know, every now and then, some of them go into a school and shoot everyone. Uh, we, we need to talk more about that. Well, I agree. And I, I, that actually relates to something that bothers me that we've talked about before, which is the shutdown of comedy. We've seen people like Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle be attacked on stage recently doing comedy. And the heyday of comedy, I, I think you'll agree, was back in the 70s and early 80s. People like Carlin and Richard Pryor, who were doing stand-up at a different level and dealing with important issues. But nowadays, so many comedians are told you can't joke about that. We, we see right now Ricky Gervais, he's a new Netflix special. People saying it's hateful. I've seen it. I didn't think so. But I think when you shut down outlets, comedy is a way of people have of coping, people have of dealing with it. And when you say you can't joke about that, you're shutting down one avenue for peaceful pressure release. What do you think about that, Ted? 
Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know that if stand up comedy were were better and more vibrant right now that like, uh, you know, that kid would wouldn't have shot up the school in Uvalde. But I take your point. I mean, I think there is a there there. I like the term pressure release. There certainly uh, used to be more ways to get your yayas out uh, if you were frustrated. Uh, you know, in my day, I was a punk rocker. I could go to uh, the mosh pit and listen to loud music and uh, work out my aggressions there. Um, you know, even the idea. You know, you mentioned Ricky Gervais being accused of being hateful. You know, the term hate speech is very Orwellian because who gets to define what's hate speech? And it really makes people shut up. The idea that they might be accused of hate speech. No one wants to be accused of that. I mean, you know, it used to be like people would tell me like, well, that, that cartoon is really tasteless. I'd be like, well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> you know, I'm not in the, I'm not in the taste, I'm not in the tastefulness business. And, um, but when, if someone were to say, you know, that cartoon is an example of hate speech, I would be really put off and, and horrified. And it might cause me to start hold, pulling my punches. I think we don't really feel like, for example, I mentioned incels, right? Like I was a little hesitant before I mentioned them um, because to talk, to even talk about them, even in, in any forum these days is to, you know, is to be sort of, you risk being accused of validating uh, this subculture that is often misogynistic and highly misogynistic and sexist and yeah, hateful against women. Um, you know, it's, uh, I've thought about, oh, maybe I shouldn't mention them. So, but the point is that like them not, not being mentioned is part of why they're so hateful because they, because they feel alienated and uh, ignored. So, you know, ignoring things is always bad. Um, you know, a society should always have its eyes wide open uh, and it should be willing to talk about anything and anyone in a wide ranging spirited, but of course, obviously respectful of people as individuals kind of way. But but we're not we that's not the world we live in. No. And, and I wasn't trying to say that the the subversion of stand up comedy was directly a result of uh, cause the mass shootings. But in a sense, if I know that if Dave Chappelle or Ricky Gervais, who are famous and rich, aren't allowed to talk about things that they find funny or things that they find ironic, that at a lower level, an 18-year-old kid absolutely isn't allowed. It's an indicator to me of what you're allowed to talk about. And you point out the mosh pit where you grew up a punk rocker. I grew up in the same era. I've been to a roller rink in Enfield, Connecticut, and stood on Henry Rollins and watched Black Flag in my day. But uh, there's fewer outlets for that aggression to come out in a safe way. A mosh pit is a safe way for the aggression to come out. And ironically, the as punks, uh, you're simultaneously angry, but respectful. Talk about that for a second, Ted. How did punks manage to, back in the 70s and 80s, manage to be respectful and angry, inclusive and derisive? 
Dead. It's true. It's true. I mean, it was a it was a joyful scene um, because it was a place where, you know, sure you'd see people. It was there was a lot of commingling. It was definitely a male dominated, uh, very white scene, but women and and people of color were welcome. And it didn't matter if you were sort of an official punk with like a, you know, a, a, like with a mohawk and a you know cool leather jacket with studs, or if you were just like a dude in a t-shirt and, je- and skinny jeans like me, or if you were even like a preppy dude. As long as you were there and you liked that music, it was understood that you were part of that community. And you know, it wasn't the intention was not to harm anyone. You know, like in the mosh pit, if someone fell, you know, you other people would pick him up. Uh, if you, you know, if you, if you had a backflip off the stage, you were pretty sure someone would catch you. You don't even know who, not just a total stranger. Um, yeah, that changed. It got, it got uglier as, uh, in the, in the, in the late eighties as, uh, sort of the metal influence, uh, seeped its way into the scene. Nothing good lasts, but for a good long time, I'd say about eight years or 10 years, um, it was definitely a safe zone and, you, you know, you'd see, even, you know, slight women who were just had slight frames uh, being really looked out for and watched out for in the mosh pit. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of a beautiful thing. Was it aggressive? Absolutely. Was it music that came out of anger? Absolutely. But it was not anger against each other. Great, great point, Ted. Great conversation as usual, Ted Rawl. You can find his stuff at R-A-L-L.com. R-A-L-L, Rawl.com. Thanks a lot, Ted. Let's take a short break and we'll come back with the backstory. Empire of Lies, an oasis of free speech, anti-censorship, and truth in the vast barren wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Great conversation with Ted Rawl, as usual. Ted's a real leftist. Is that fair to say, Rod? Yeah, he's, he's real practical and reasonable. But, but, real leftist. That too. 100%. No, so I always like talking to Ted. And now, you know, at first you have people on his guests, you don't know much about them. But as we learned that Ted is French and a French punk rocker, the real picture emerges. So coming up this hour, Albert Gillery, and we're taking your calls 202 521 1320. Rod, do you happen to know the name of the show? I, I believe you're listening to The Backstory. And so if you want to talk about any topics we've been talking about this week, Joe 2, 521-1320, you heard the Uvalde headline today that apparently the cops were, there's a communication problem, and they're sitting outside the between the time they encountered the gunman and shot him to death, there was about an hour and a half that went by. And they were getting 911 calls 
from children inside the shooting. You heard that, right? Yeah, I did, yeah, I did hear that lead. The timeline's been coming out the last uh, 24 hours or 36 hours or so, and it, it hasn't been looking good for the police there. And none of this is going to bring the children back or, or, or the, uh, the two teachers who died. None of, none of this information that's coming out is going to bring their lives back. But it's the picture that's being painted out of what happened is making a lot of people upset that the police waited this amount of time. And we've seen the, uh, I'm not, I guess he's a chief or something, came out and said, well, you know, officers were scared they were going to get shot. Yes, and that doesn't sound very good if your parent or child was shot. Does that make sense? And I don't have a good answer for that because no one's going to. There's going to be no answer for that. Do you think that anything's going to come up that's going to make people go, oh, that's okay? Rod, nothing's going to oh. come out that's going to make people be okay with that, right? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, people are expect that the police are, you know, could put themselves in harm's way to save children at the, at the at the at the least, you know, uh, these innocent children who wouldn't know how to defend themselves in, in a situation like this. Uh, parents and other other civilians would expect the police would. Uh, it's their job to put themselves in the, in the harm's way. No, right. And, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, I guarantee you the police had training that said to them, do the opposite of what they did. Right? I mean, I don't need to know much. The police did not have training and said, by the way, if you're afraid in this situation, just hang out outside. No one's possibly got that sort of training. So what happened was they went against their training, right, Rod? Yeah, police do. Uh, they do military type training on how to, you know, you act a shooter. You know, you line up, you know, uh, one police officer after another in one line. You know, against the wall. You know, come against the wall. It's almost like a like a worm. You know what I'm saying? So it wouldn't I, I personally don't understand how. A group of police officer can stand by this saying, well, we were scared we were going to get shot. So this just looks bad all around for this um, police department and other police officers themselves. Yeah, it's a very painful headline because there's, A, nothing you can do about it. Whatever, even if everyone agreed this is horrible, nothing should change what happened, right? So this headline is only going to serve to stir up now, might it make a difference in the next year shooting? I guess so. But since this went against their training, they're taught what to do. This is a matter of, in that situation, what are you going to do to make people follow their training? And I'm not hearing anybody suggest that. Are you, Rod? What are people saying, well, how can we prevent this in the future? Don't do that, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Of course, you know. Um, yeah, I, I really don't know what to say about this because it's just like uh, you know, I was in the gym and uh, I was watching all the news stations were watching the uh, press conference of. Uh, I didn't catch his position, so I'm just guessing he was like the chief of the police or something, and you know, he was trying to justify what happened, and they're not making it anything any better. You know, <laughs> it's just the the hole is just getting deeper and deeper. 
Now, speaking of the hole getting deeper and deeper, I think things are not looking good. They're not looking any better for the Biden administration. Right? So it looks like the Democrats are going to lose the Congress and the Senate. And I'm still not seeing Republicans. You you know, Ted Cruz is in the news with Uvalde. Oh, I, the other thing that's happening is the NRA's conventions this weekend in Houston, 300 miles from Uvalde shooting. You've seen all the people pulling out of the NRA conference. Dead. I mean, Rod. <laughs> yeah, no, I did see uh, uh, some musical artist. I didn't know who he was. I, I believe he's like a country singer or something pulled out. And all this, but you know that doesn't make sense because you know with the, you know I know I know how uh, the 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 Democrats politically had to shape this tragedy and blame the NRA and guns, but you know I don't know why you would pull out of this event because of something that happened uh, from a crazed teenager. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and and probably not an NRA member, and nothing the NRA agrees with. I saw the music artists included Larry Gatlin. And Don McLean had pulled out of this event. But also, Dan Patrick, who's the lieutenant governor of Texas, he was scheduled to speak at an NRA breakfast this morning. He didn't go to that. And Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, is going to make a speech. This is weird. He's going to speak by remote. A pre-recorded speech. He's not going to speak live. As if that makes it better. How does that make it better? If you're going to speak, whether you're live or on tape, I don't think matters, but it does apparently in some people because they're being fooled by that. Meanwhile, Donald Trump was speaking live. And yeah, I don't see what the... This is not a pro murder event. Is that fair to say? The NRA is not pro-murder. Yeah, no, for, for sure. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely not pro-murder. I've never heard that from the NRA. Right, so the musical artists, I can get, in a sense, being a musical artist on the it's not even about the organization. I wouldn't want to do a concert the weekend after this shooting in Texas. You see what I'm saying? Uh, it's not a musical entertainment environment. But a lot of people are pulling out. I'm not sure who they think they're helping or hurting. I'm not sure who they think they'd hurt. Again, let me point out. Do you think any of the parents of the kids who died in Uvalde are sitting here going, I hope no music artists play this week. I hope Larry Gatlin, no one, none of the parents are thinking about Larry Gatlin. Is that safe to say, Rod? Yeah, 100%. That's the last thing any of these family members or parents are thinking about is who's performing 300 miles away from where we are grieving right now. Um, it's just it's just virtue, unnecessary virtue signaling. No, I would say that actually, let's just talk about the effect in the electorate. 
I would say these mass shootings don't help things for Biden. The Democrats want to try to turn it around so it helps things. But I think it creates an environment where it seems like the wheels are coming off everything in the Biden administration. It seems like the Biden administration, which already seems kind of crazy, now seems like wheels coming off crazy. Do you think it contributes to the dystopian environment of the Biden administration? Or do you think it helps Joe Biden? Because they go, well, at least he's got the right attitude towards mass shootings, which is, I don't know, he's opposed to them. Do you think this helps or hurts the Biden administration? No, I think it definitely hurts them, Lee. And uh, I was going to bring up one uh, subject with you, and I wanted to get your take on it. You know, they keep uh, saying gun violence, gun violence, gun violence. The, the Yankees, I don't know if they – I think they put it up on their billboards in the game for people to see that, uh, you know, they were talking about the mass shooting that happened and the, the problems with gun violence in America. But guns don't shoot themselves, um, you know. Uh, someone has to be holding the gun. Someone has to pull the trigger. Someone had to load the bullets. Uh, I've never seen a gun shoot itself. I never, you know, if I see a gun on the ground, I'm not going to run scared away. But if I see somebody hold, pulling out a gun, you know what I mean? I'm going to be alarmed. So they keep talking about gun violence, but they don't talk about the perpetrators of the gun violence. No, I, this has been a democratic tactic for a long time. Whenever they talk about murders, they talk about gun violence as guns were used. So they'll look at the situation in Philly or Baltimore or Chicago or New York or name the city, and they'll talk about victims of gun violence this weekend. And you're right. The guns didn't do anything on their own. But they don't want to say gang violence, for instance. And I think by now, the right is on to the techniques. The right knows the propaganda techniques. Do you think everyone on the right sees that for what it is, a propaganda technique, trying to make, if they do that every time a murder happens, and they always discuss gun violence, they make it seem like the, the gun's responsible. Right, Rod? Yeah, especially with Buffalo, and now we have this Ovalde, Texas shooting, so it's something back-to-back, and you just keep hearing about gun violence, gun violence. And we, um, I saw Carmon Sabia was on The War Room with uh, Steve, Steve Bannon, I think it was yesterday, and he was he brought up the fact about uh, psycho, psychotropic drugs, and they don't ever want to address these pharmaceutical companies and how they drug kids. You know, when I was in grade school, Lee, you know, I went to public school when I was in grade school, and, you know, I didn't know anybody who was on any type of drugs. Then I went to private school uh, uh, before going to high school for a few years, and I, I met a couple of people that were on drugs. Uh, and then as the years go on, you know, it's become normal now. So, but it's never even discussed. It's just gun violence. It's the gun leads. The, the gun did it all by itself. And of course, that's a topic that I won't have much usual say, but I'm I'm somewhat bothered. People bring up they they were on antipsychotic medications, SRS drugs, whatever. But those get assigned to people, those get prescribed those medications 
when the person's having psychotic, you know, when they're having mental problems. So which comes first? It's not like they give the kids SRS drugs and then the symptoms appear. They already had symptoms. They already are having whatever violent thoughts or acting out. And then the kids get given the drugs. So you see what I'm saying, Rod? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? The no, no, I, yeah, yeah, I, definitely agree, I definitely agree with you on that. But I would say as a whole, so let's, I'll just step, take a step away from exactly what you're talking about, the kids getting. But as a whole in, in America, and I'm telling you this personally, is from 13 and a half years in the medical field, America's over-prescribed any type of medication, whether it be psychological, pain medications, whatever. It's just the, the, these people being tra trained in medical school are taught that, you know, if they come in with a certain type of pain, give them some type of pill. We're just over-prescribed uh, medications over here in this country. Now, I say as someone who's on about 15 pills a day, I have so many pills, my, it's, that's one of the main things my girlfriend helps me with is figuring out what pills I should take. So am I over-prescribed? I don't know. It seems like... No, but you... Yeah, but I mean, you've had... you've had. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about, like, you know, just, uh, you know, if you go into a medical site, you know, hey, I have a headache, they immediately, they immediately put you on some type of uh, prescription drug and, okay, tell us how this works for you. Instead of, uh, well, you know, try this, you know, try getting some better rest, eating better, da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, they immediately go straight to the to the uh, prescri prescription medication versus you who had some type of medical issues where you need uh, the, these medical prescriptions. But on the other hand, one of the reasons they prescribe them is they work. Uh, I'm on metformin, for instance, for my diabetes. Metformin does a good job of keeping my numbers down, of keeping my blood sugar down. Because we can measure it objectively. Now, are there consequences to taking medications? Yes, there are. But part of the reason they get prescribed is because, in fact, they work. And every one of them, all 15 of them, I'm really taking like 15 pills a day. No fooling. I take so many of them. And my girlfriend is great because, first off, she makes sure I get them on time, but also she pronounces the names. Most of them have very long names. I wish it'd just be the blood pressure pill or whatever, but it's not. But they do explain how everyone works. But the other question I have is when I'm taking so many together, how do I know how the drugs are interacting with one another? Right. What's the effect of taking this pill and this pill? But they'll explain every one of them. But I I can't really complain about people being overmedicated. I could be if it turns out that I was overmedicated. I took the pills, and I took them because the doctor said to take them, and nurses gave them to me and everything else. And I only have so much time to research medications and come up with my own conclusions. But Rod, you know about medications. What do you think? 
in your case, no, I, I, I would agree. You, you know, um, sometimes, you know, if you say, Hey, you know, I'm feeling this type of way, um, having stomach pains, they'll look at your medications and like, okay, let's take this one out for a week or two and let, let's see how you feel. And if you feel fine, then okay. You now you're on one less pill and et cetera, et cetera. But as far as, what, uh, how I start this conversation, um, the children being placed on these, uh, on these drugs, Lee, you know, especially, especially young boys, it's, it's, it's more boys than girls, um, by a lot. I can't, I don't know the percentage, but I would assume it's probably by over half. Uh, it's, you know, the like ADHD, oh, the, you know, this kid's really hyper. Well, it's just a boy, you know, they took, they've taken recess away. They've taken competition and sports away. No, everybody's a winner. You know, it's just a young boy. I remember being a young boy, you have a lot of energy, you know, you, you want to burn it off. You know, used to play kickball and all that other stuff during recess and whatnot. But they've they've removed these things, and you know now the the solution is a is a drug. But if it if it has the effect of coming kid down in class, it, they're going to use it because whatever is tranquilizing them essentially, they're going to use it, and that's how a lot of these things happen. And I don't know. If they create further problems, it seems like they might, but what's their solution? Okay. So what do you do? You don't give the kid a pill and put him on a sports and be disruptive there. So I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? I think there's no clear solution. Rod. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I agree with you. There, there's no clear solution. I uh, I definitely agree with you on that. But it's just the uh, we can't even have this. We're having this discussion, me and you, Lee. Uh, but you don't hear it on a national stage on any type of, you know, this school district. Hey, we're going to talk about, you know, uh, what are the effects of uh, these drugs uh, having on our children? Like I said, especially young boys, because that's who's being uh, medicated the most uh, as far as uh, for things like ADHD, uh, which is over uh, diagnosed as well. So, yeah, it's, but you don't hear this discussion on any type of uh, uh, corporate media. Well, because some of them, if you were to bring up the counter and say, do we need this many drugs in general, what they might do is they might shame you for having a position. They might say to you, well, of course we do. How do you think the kids got to sign these drugs? Why were they prescribed in the first place? Well, they're dealing with this. And are you a, are you an anti-SRSer? It's equivalent of anti-vaxxer. But uh, yeah, no, I would, I would, I would take, I would take on that debate, Lee. I would definitely take on that debate because, like I said, a, a lot of the, yeah, think about look at look at the teachers that are exposed on libs of TikTok. You know, they've gotten these through college and graduate school. They've moved away from uh, being a traditional teacher now to these pseudo-intellectuals who know what's best for uh, society and, you know. Yes, and there's precious little solutions. Uh, it's easy to point out the problems, but then when it comes to solving it, in this case, where it's often done with drugs, and I think anybody who's looked at it has concerns that drugs are used too often, but they don't have any definition exactly of what they want to get rid of. Like if it's this behavior, we will not assign drugs. We will not prescribe drugs. They don't 
having a solution for it. But I, I think broadly, and here's the other question, where do you have that debate? You say you're in favor of the debate, but where is that debate had? At school board level? At national level? What do you think, Rod? I would say, like at a school board level, between uh, you know, you would obviously have some type of uh, therapist there, psychologists, psychiatrists, parents, uh, counselors, and you know, just to have the debate, you know, have uh, research, peer, you know, some peer reviewed uh, data, and um, you know, you have the debate, you know, look, hey, my, I don't believe my son has ADHD, you know, when he's home, and you know, when he's with his parents, he's able to. He's able to focus and, and, and whatnot, but when he's schooling, he's away from his parents, just like a lot of kids, you know, sometimes he gets hyper around his friends. That doesn't mean he has ADHD, you know, so just to put a, uh, a, a diagnosis on him, you know, I think that term's overused, the, the ADHD. I started hearing when I was in school with one of my classmates, and I don't think he had ADHD, and he, I think he also, I came to learn that he was given a placebo pill, so he was given, you know, like a sugar pill. There was nothing really in it. Yes. It brings up a lot of issues, and there's no obvious mechanism in our society to deal with these issues. Because if it had come up on a local level, at a school board meeting, I'm not convinced just because a parent has the ability to stand up and yell that they're a qualified expert on it. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't have a say. But I have no easy answer on that one. By the way, if you want to call and be part of the discussion, 202-521-1320. Now, in terms of the way this is going to affect the election, I I get, get the sense a lot, a lot of people feel, like I said, the wheels are coming off our society in general. And because Biden's president, and I'm not saying it's completely fair, a lot of these issues predate Joe Biden and didn't get any better. Or The issues of SRSs and children did not gain any clarity in the Trump administration. We agree, Rod, that Trump didn't clarify the issue at all. No, no, Trump's – I wouldn't even expect Trump to be able to, to handle that. Um, you know, he's – He's too aloof with things like this. He tries to put in a joke in an unnecessary time. So I don't think he would be a serious enough person to even address certain things like this. But it does help the sense that this is an administration that's, let me put it like this. This administration is overseeing the obvious complete decline of a lot of things. A lot of Americans are afraid they're very afraid because they don't see a future that seems to hold any promise. Do you think that's fair to say, Ron? Oh, most definitely. That's why we played that clip uh, last week with Jamal of CNN, where uh, I think it was 21% of America are scared. Uh, that was what the poll said, that they're scared of how of the way America is going right now. So um, I, I, I feel that sentiment. I see it around sometimes. Like Again, gas is still going up. Uh, we're about to reach $5. Food prices going up. Uh, baby formula shortages. Uh, violence uh, in certain parts of America is going up. Uh, so all these things combined are giving people hopelessness. Now, how high – this is a guess on your part. 
But how high do you think gas is going to go, Rod? Uh, not, uh, national average, I would say, this is just a guess, Lee, but close to $6, so I'd say like five seventy. Yeah, so I'd say we get to 6 by the middle of summer. By the way, Command Central, who did you say we had? Okay, let's try the go-to, 202-521-1320. Anonymous, go ahead. Yes, sir. How are you, sir? Fine. Great. I was wanting to speak to the issue you just talked to a moment ago regarding medical and uh, medication. You yes. said that uh, you were on about 15 pills a day. You're not so sure whether or not it increases or decreases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm speaking objectively. I would never attempt to be critical. Okay. Uh I want to share something with you. I am personally 73 years old. This time last year, I had diabetes. I had high blood pressure. I had neuropathy and high cholesterol. I was on metformin, as you mentioned, okay, uh, and a few other things, okay? had been on it for 11 years. I was uh, in Africa early last year for six weeks. I met a doctor who shared some counsel with me and gave me some natural nutrients and I began taking them as a life coach. I realized it's significance of following instructions. I took these Instructions, I took the nutrients, which was natural, organic food, okay? Ten months later, I have no diabetes. I have no high blood pressure. I have no neuropathy nor high cholesterol. And it all comes from the food that we eat and the hype of the medical profession who know what they tell is not the truth. And the, the diabetes medicine is designed to keep you on it for the rest of your life. Diabetes is designed, I know this is a big word, it's designed, high blood pressure medicine is designed to create diabetes. Diabetes creates high cholesterol and on and on and on and on. It's designed to keep you bound in that issue because of pharmaceutical reasons for Life Now, I know what I'm saying is a very, very big statement, but I know it to be 1,000% true. Well, thanks for the call. I appreciate that. So, you, you, as a person who has some of these problems, you hear things like that periodically. And I'm not disagreeing with it, but it's part of a contradictory set of pieces of advice you get. You know what I'm saying, Rod? You know, for every person who says that, then what? Do I go off the medications? Because the doctors, then the doctors would say, why'd you do that? I'd say, well, somebody called in a show. How would you think that would go over if I told the doctors I dropped medications because I got a call on the show? 
Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying, Lee. Um, but like like the caller was saying, he followed a uh, strict regimen and uh, certain nutrients. But yeah, it, it is. Uh, I've I've also uh, studied and researched this as well, and it is a, a long process. Was well, the diabetes. You can't just uh, like you said, you know, go cold turkey and stop taking your medication because you will go into diabetic shock and 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 whatnot. So it's it's a long process. Yeah. So you you do get. And I appreciate the call, and I appreciate the advice, but you get a lot of advice, and a lot of the advice you get contradicts each other. And so at the end of the day, when I got to go back to the doctor, I can't say, well, I know you said take that, but I decided not to. You see what I'm saying? They don't like it when you say that. So let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Elva Guillory on the backstory. And we're back on the backstory on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. In the Empire of Lies. Reminder, our show will not be on Monday. Monday is Memorial Day. It's a federal holiday. And on the show, we have every federal holiday off. So it's not anything to be baffled by. Don't be shocked when we're not here Monday. We'll be back on Tuesday. And that's the way it is every federal holiday. So Memorial Day Monday. Enjoy yourself. Have a great weekend, everyone despite the bad weather. Joining us now, great friend of the show, Elbert Guillory, longtime civil rights activist, politician, attorney, and man about town. Hey, Elbert, how are you doing? Very well. How are you today? Good, Elbert. So you're running for lieutenant governor, correct? Yes, sir, I am. Now, I... I looked up today because I want to see what the date was. Explain part of the Louisiana electoral system. A lot of states, for instance, Pennsylvania, Texas, Tennessee, they recently had state primaries, right? Now, as I understand it, Louisiana does not have a state primary. You, The next election is in November. Am I correct about that? What's, what's the deal with the system in Louisiana, Albert. We'll have we'll have the primaries in November and the final elections in December. No, that's a that's a little unusual as far as most states go, right? Yes it is. A lot of them are, uh, a lot of them are having a primary now. That is correct. Uh, we have one month period between our primaries and our finals. Okay, so just one one month. And how does that affect your strategy when you're running for lieutenant governor? If, in other words, if you win the primary, is it likely? Does that predict who's going to win in Louisiana? Is one party so dominant that if you win the primary, you'll probably win the general? The Republican Party in Louisiana is so dominant that there's great probability 
that the Republic, the Republican who wins the primary will prevail in the election. Now, has that always been the case? Has it always been a, a dominantly Republican state? Or it seems to me, if I go back years to Hugh Long, for instance, the Democrats had a bit of power. How long have Republicans been more or less running a show in Louisiana? Albert? Republicans really, the Republican Party became uh, dominant around. 2010, and really started to to take over uh, to the point where all of our statewide elected officials, uh, except one congressman, are all of them are are Republicans. And right now we have a governor who's a Democrat, but that is because Republicans killed off each other in the primary. Yeah, yeah. What what effect did that have? We were able to get a Democrat governor despite an overwhelming majority, state majority of Republicans, and despite having the best financed uh, contestants, candidates, but because there was such an uh, acerbic, just almost violent battle, certainly verbally violent, between the Republicans that no Republican supported another Republican in that uh, in that in that election, and the Rep- and the Democrat was able to sneak in. Now, the differences between Republicans, are they similar to differences we see nationally? In other words, it seems like nationally, right now, the base split is MAGA people versus establishment Republicans. Was there a similar split in Louisiana? There is. Yes, there is. Unfortunately, um, we're trying, we're working very hard to mend that rift and be able to work together. Uh, my, my mom died when she was 104, and she and I were together for uh, about 70 years. And it's close. she was my rock. I, I was her, I, I was my mom's favorite child. <clears throat> I hope my sisters aren't listening. Uh, but despite that closeness, we disagreed from time to time, mother and I did. And so family members will disagree periodically. But we have to disagree in an agreeable way. We should do it quietly. And when a decision is made, we should come out of the room where that decision has been made, united and unified. I wish we could do it as a country also, but certainly we must do it as a party. Now, what do you see, trying to put the fairest... Uh, criticism of, I, I take it you're not an establishment Republican, right, Albert? I know you well enough to know. You're not an establishment guy, correct? No, sir. I'm I'm a proud red meat Republican. Now, putting the best face on the establishment Republicans, putting the best face on them, what are they in favor of in Louisiana? 
they have played with transgenderism. They've played with gun control. They've played with abortion. Um, they are not strong supporters of religion, the right to worship, I should say, not religion, but the right to worship as one pleases. They have not insisted on school choice for the hundreds of thousands of little Louisiana children who are in some of America's worst and most failing schools. Now, why do you think it is? Is that an attempt to be popular with people who take a modern view of things? Or why do you think they take those positions? Albert? be honest with you, some Republicans, uh, because Louisiana was a, 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 dem a, a Democrat state for a very long time, there are some people who switched over um, simply because of uh, it was a good thing to do, they thought. It was not, they were not vested or invested in the values of the Republican Party. So they, they'd been Democrats for years. Uh, they needed to be reelected, so they switched over. And so they continued to vote the Democrat values on guns and abortion and issues like that, school choice. Now, so let me know. I have a theory. And if I'm wrong, I, I just want to be sure that I'm wrong. So don't be nice to me, Albert. I have a theory that a lot of the differences between voters is rural and urban, whether you live in a city or live in the country. And that supersedes, for instance, differences in race. When you go around the state and you look at the voters, do you see that the big difference is whether a person, black or white, lives in an urban setting or a rural setting? Do you see that as a big difference between voters? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is this has been true of the, I've worked and lived in about six different states and Washington, D.C., and that divide between urban and rural has been consistent over the past 55 years that I've been in law, politics, and government. And why do you think that is? What is it about living in the country that makes you see the world differently than the people who live in the city? I don't have a full grasp of it, but people who live closer to the land, who have time to think, who live a quieter life, have a more, have a greater appreciation for what, what I would call the basic things in life. Um, I'm, I'm a country boy, and I'm, I'm proud to be a country boy. I've lived in big cities around the country, and I, I can fit in with the urban folks, but I will always have the values, and they're quite different, the values of a country boy. We love God. We love America. 
and we adhere to common sense more more so than than urban folks and liberals. And and in terms of looking at why, because you're saying adhere to common sense, do you think people live in the city because they're not dealing with the day-to-day stuff, for instance, putting food on your table, where a lot of times people in the country, I assume, for instance, you've killed animals, Albert. Yes, sir. Right. The every person lives in the city doesn't have to do that. The food they get at the grocery store, right? And I think that affects the way they deal with the reality of life in a different way than people in the city. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. That is a more eloquent way of saying exactly what I was saying. Now, the abortion debate is being discussed nationwide right now because of the leaked. So let let me interrupt myself. Before I ask you a question, as an attorney, as someone who's been around the law, how rare and disturbing do you find this leak of a Supreme Court document that's supposed to be private? Albert, what do you think of the leak of the document, just in general, not dealing with the substance issue? That leak was like a nuclear explosion in my profession. Uh, Someone violated all of the sacredness, all of the, all that is holy in confidentiality in our profession. And much of it is based on, on confidentiality, on being able to, to deliberate and to discuss with your client or with your colleagues, certainly with other judges, my God, that was unbelievable that someone would do that. And the way situation is breaking out nationally with the debate about abortion, we saw recently Oklahoma passed a law that basically all abortions are legal in Oklahoma. And other states have passed laws or about to that should Roe v. Wade be overturned, it effectively outlaws abortion in those states. In Louisiana, how's this playing out? And will the decision on Roe versus Wade affect Louisiana directly? Albert? When Roe v. Wade is overturned uh, in a few days or a few weeks, Abortion will be illegal in Louisiana. There may be some modifications. There we may there may be there are some who wish to permit in cases of incest or rape that that will work. But um, basically, when Roe v. Wade goes. Abortion in Louisiana goes. Now, is there a lot of concern about that? A lot of activism on the 
pro-choice forces? Are they? Yes. There is a lot of activism. There's a lot of attempt to push back on Roe v. Wade, uh, particularly from the abortion industry. I mean, the 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 people, uh, the white sheeted people who come from Planned Parenthood, uh, and I say white sheets because a Klansman recently told me that they should wear white sheets because they kill in one year. Planned Parenthood kills more black babies in one year, more black people lives in one year than the Klan has killed from its beginning in the 1880s until today. And of course, we've talked about that before, and I've talked about it a number of times in the show. I did not know who Margaret Sanger was until a black farmer, I was covering the Pigford black farmer scandal, and Eddie Slaughter, a black farmer in southwest Georgia, a country boy too, uh, Eddie, he told me he voted Republican. And I said, why? Because I was baffled by it. I was a Democrat at the time. And he said, I think abortion is black genocide. And I had never heard that from any black person. And I am still amazed that an organization founded by an avowed racist, Margaret Sanger, does not generate more derision or questions among a lot of black liberals. Are you amazed that the issue of Margaret Sanger being a racist and having something called the Eagle Project to kill as many black people as possible and to fool black people through their black leadership. And she, she was very explicit about it, right, Albert? She was very clear about what your goal was. She said, so black people yeah, go are needs of society and they should be exterminated. So she created the Negro Project designed to exterminate Negroes, and that morphed, that the Negro project morphed into Planned Parenthood. And then she and the directors of Planned Parenthood placed their abortion mills primarily throughout the black and brown communities of America. And that is why three quarters of their abortions are black and brown babies, almost three quarters of a million black and brown babies every year. Now, is this possibly a conspiracy theory or Russian disinformation, Albert? Because what you're saying sounds amazing. But is it provably true by looking at the legislation? Go ahead. Just take a, do a map or Google the locations of any 10 uh, Planned Parenthood abortion mills, and, and you'll see where they are. Now, why do you think there are so many? Because I've talked to them, and periodically in this show, a lot of liberals in general, and a lot of black liberals too, are in denial about this. Have you noticed that in your life? That some people, you could show them, you would offer to show them, look, look at the legislation, look at the statements, look at the words of Margaret Sanger in, in her own words. There's no question this is her saying it. And her meeting with the Klan in New Jersey, for instance. It's clear as day, but some people don't want to accept it. 
Have you known that phenomenon? Yes, I have, and I have been fighting against it for some years. Uh, part of it has to do with ignorance. Part of it has to do ignorance on the parts of black folks who don't study uh, issues like these. A big part of it is the media. People believe if the news folks say it, if it's said on CNN, it must be true. And CNN and the lamestream media do not touch Margaret Singer and her history and the impact of her history and her organization on the black community. I mean, these Black Lives Matter, for example, people, they, they, they complain about a few people being shot by police officers, and they turn their backs on hundreds of thousands of black and brown babies being destroyed. Yes, and, and if one thought the issue was black lives, that would be the first thing you'd go for. You'd save a lot of black lives. And again, it's not an accident. We know why it's happened. Margaret Sanger was an avowed racist. But I hear people who are so in denial about it, they won't hear even evidence. And then they talk about disinformation. What did you think of the recent disinformation governance board? Albert, that was an internationalist we dealt with. What did you think of that? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was having bad reception. Which which in misinformation? The Disinformation Government Board and the singer Nanjankovic. The thing the Biden administration tried to establish, established for a brief time through the Department of Homeland Security and then gave up on when everybody hated it. What do you think of Disinformation Governance Board as a role of the government? Of the United States. I thought that was hilarious that someone from the Biden administration would come up with such a, a concept when they are responsible for so much disinformation and misinformation. Uh, it was it was hilarious. Another propaganda. And it, it seems to me that the Biden administration assertion has a habit of putting in people, Nijanguish, for instance, who are clearly, aside from ideology, she's inept. She's not somebody who seems qualified for her job. Am I wrong in noticing the Biden administration seems to have a lot of people in place who aren't qualified for the, the job that they have? Is that unfair, Albert? That, that's, that's very fair. This, this, their press secretary now is purely uh, selected on the basis of diversity, uh, overlooking merit. I mean, they needed a black female uh, transgender person or, or an LGBTQ person, and that is what they chose. I have been a professional journalist for decades. And there was, there are qualified black and white and Asian and Hispanic and Native American journalists out there, but to choose someone solely because they fit some diversity rule is it's just 
and you get what you what you have right there as the the, the White House press secretary. Total incompetence. It's sad reflection upon America. And you'd think they wouldn't want somebody who's incompetent to be in that position because that position is defending the Biden administration. So I'd say it's a suicidal devotion to diversity because it's ultimately going to hurt them. Right, Albert? Absolutely. But what do you expect for some, from, from someone who is so incompetent that he cannot understand, he could not understand merit. He's an ideologue and he's a demented ideologue. He will just follow down the road, down the yellow brick road and choose someone because he, he can't recognize merit and quality even in his own party. So the last minute or so we have, Albert, what have you learned as you run for lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana? What have you learned from talking to voters? What are their concerns? Most voters in Louisiana are concerned about the very, very poor education system in Louisiana, the rotten, rotten schools that we have here, and the violence, the violence facing the all of us on the streets of America. Those are the two biggest issues. And of course, immigration, guns um, are, are major issues in Louisiana. Uh, Louisiana. The government can do what it wants to do, but Louisiana old country boys aren't going to give up their guns. No, because it was a hunt, right? That's, that's what people need to understand. It's not a maybe on guns for them. It's a way of life. Albert Guillory, thanks so much for appearing. I got to get down to Louisiana soon for a meal. I know that contradicts my statements about having diabetes, but whatever. You only live once. I got to get down there again, Albert. Great appearance. Thanks so much for talking to you. God bless. We'll talk to you soon, Albert Guillory. Thanks so much to Ted Rawl from New York, too, for a great appearance. And for the callers, 202-521-1320. Thanks to all our callers. We'll be back Tuesday. Have a nice Memorial Day weekend, everybody, on The Backstory.